0: Um, We do uh, something each month, we take a a song or a chorus that's not in our hymn book and we teach it kind of as a song of the month and uh, that song was our song of the month for December, an acquaintance of mine that uh, had written that song and asked our uh, man that heads up our a music ministry if we could do that for our song of the month and it has been it's always a joy as you go through the month everybody's uneasy when they first learn a song and people coming in at the wrong time and uh, singing the wrong thing and all sorts of different things and so uh, as the month goes on everybody gets a little bit stronger and stronger and we sang that uh, to finish our candlelight service that Sunday evening before Christmas And then uh, today was our last day as a church singing it. I was a little disappointed because that's the day everybody's really singing that out once you're done uh, with that song for the month. And so I was glad to hear that uh, again this evening. And uh, our passage of Scripture tonight, if you want to turn your Bible to John 11, is going to emphasize all of those things. Uh, It talked about that first verse. Here is God at last revealed in the person of a son. And that in fact, He came to earth as a man, uh, not as a God to destroy, but as a Savior to save. And then here is God, our second Adam. He lived the life that we could not. And then here is God, our risen conqueror, that He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And tonight, this passage is going to emphasize a little bit of each of those things. And we'll be there in John chapter 11 in just a moment. The difficulty with preaching from this particular passage, or really the book of John right now for me, is uh, we have just, as a church, been walking through on Sunday mornings, uh, just been going through the book of John, really back uh, since August. And so it's difficult for me to speak from... Uh, the book of John, uh, without feeling like I'm grabbing from every chapter there. Uh, just personally, I started in it about a year or so ago, and then uh, this summer was uh, traveling a good bit and was able to preach at some camps, and I used the book of John to walk through those weeks of camp. And uh, in fact, we were in a camp last week of July, and then in, one in the first week of August, and then... Um, when we came back, my dad had had a, an incident with his back. He had not uh, had any back trouble in over 10 years, I believe it was. And just all of a sudden, his back went out to the place he couldn't get up and around. And so uh, starting in August, I started all the preaching, really, at the church. And so we just started walking through uh, the book of John and started at the beginning, made our way through it, and uh, then many of you asked and mentioned that you're praying, we're uh, thankful for that. My dad uh, did pass away unexpectedly uh, in September, and we just sort of have kept going through the book of John, uh, sort of through that, Um, just as a personal uh, testimony, the Lord uh, wrote His word for us, uh, but there's moments that you feel like He gave you something personally, and um, in those moments, uh, of course, in the, the heavy grief that comes with losing a loved one, uh, my dad and I were very close, had a very uh, strong, good relationship of no regrets or anything like that. And so, uh, but the difficulty was trying to figure out what to preach in those moments. How do you serve a church and a people that is hurting uh, with the loss of a pastor who's also uh, your father. And so dealing with some of that, and so as I began to pray, and uh, the Lord really uh, just put the book of John in my heart and just said, just keep going through. Then you don't have to decide what to preach. It's there. The next week, you just go to the next place and the next place. And so Uh, The Lord just sort of decides what you're going to be looking at each week, and so uh, it has been helpful, and it has been healing uh, for us, for myself, for my family, and then for us as a church, and uh, I am thankful for this church as well. Uh, Many of you uh, wrote us cards uh, when all that happened and uh, contacted us, and uh, we're grateful for that. Uh, You allowed uh, Pastor Brown and his wife to come be there at the funeral, which uh, was a tremendous comfort to myself and uh, to Joy. I really feel like um, Joy was, as a wife, of course from her family, uh, but I feel like this church holds a special place in my heart because I feel in a way that you gifted her to me Uh, after uh, whatever it was, we got married at 21, and I feel like for... 20 or 21 years, you poured into her life. I guess she came when she was five, so a little less than that. And you poured into her life, and then God has allowed her uh, to be poured into my life. And so I'm I'm most grateful for this church for that, uh, for my wife and for what she is in my life. And so we praise the Lord for that. If you would look at John chapter number 11 this evening. Now, when you're speaking as a guest in a, in a, a church, as a guest, uh, the two best things you could do, number one is preach a, a message from somewhere in the book of Revelation. That always makes the pastor nervous. And if you can't do that, pick a passage with 40 to 60 verses in it. Uh, that also sometimes makes a pastor nervous. And so I went with the latter this evening. Uh, the part of our story tonight is about 44 verses. Uh, we won't read through each and every one of those for time's sake. and We won't read them through uh, initially here at the start. But I do want to look at uh, several of these. It's a very familiar story to us. So, I do feel like we can cover uh, most of this passage together this evening and really try to gather what God is teaching us from it. To give you the context before we read verse one, Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. In fact, the week after this is over and he heals Lazarus. He goes away for some time. And then really the next uh, action that he takes in his earthly ministries, he turns and he heads toward uh, Jerusalem. And there he has his triumphant entry and uh, he's anointed by Mary. And then we enter that passion week, that last and final moment of Christ's life. So he is nearing the end of his ministry, and it feels like this is sort of the penultimate miracle, uh, the pinnacle of his earthly ministry, and that he raises this man from death to life in this man Lazarus, and so uh, as we're entering into this, he is just Uh, worked and healed a blind man back in uh, chapters 8 and 9, and he's teaching, and uh, he's walking through. In chapter 10, he gets into teaching about the good shepherd, and we'll see in a moment why I think that's significant that those two chapters uh, line up together. But after he finishes teaching, he enters into this story that we have, and we'll look in verse number 1, if you would, and we'll begin reading there. It says, "Now Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany the town of Mary and her sister Martha it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick therefore his sisters sent unto him saying lord behold he whom <clears throat> excuse me he whom thou lovest is sick when jesus heard that he said this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of god that the son of god might be glorified thereby Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. And then after that, saith he unto his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. Let's finish reading there for just a moment. We'll walk through most of the rest of the chapter as we go. Let's ask God to bless His Word tonight. Lord, we praise You for Your goodness, for Your grace and Your love. I thank You for this group of people that is here uh, this evening uh, that has just celebrated the birth of Christ here on this earth as a human. And we know that that birth did not just bring about salvation on its own, but that it led You to the life that You lived, to the miracles and the teaching that we now have in Your Word, and to the death that You died for us on the cross But we praise you uh, for the work that you did in raising Christ to life. Help us to learn from this story this evening in which you raised another man to new life. Help us to be comforted by it. Help us to find our uh, comfort in your words. Help us to love you. Help us to love what you're doing in our lives. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. want you to think about for a few moments tonight, there's a lot of different ways that you could uh, address this story. There's different people groups that you could go through in this story and take different points and examine different things from. Of course, you have Uh, Mary and Martha and Jesus' interaction with them. You have Jesus' interaction with Lazarus and uh, the impact that, of course, being dead and then being alive would uh, be a change in your life. And we have uh, sort of that for us. We have Jesus later in the chapter interacting with the Pharisees. And uh, just a, a side note, their reaction to this it just as Jesus miracles increased, it seems their reaction got more ridiculous didn 't it as as they went, he heals a lame man, and the Pharisees say don 't carry your mat on the sabbath they didn 't care that he had been raised or uh, brought up from his uh, lame infirmity. Then Jesus goes, he heals a blind man, and uh, the Pharisees ask, well, who did this to you? And he tries to explain, and how did he do it? And one of their obscure rules was you couldn't make clay, and of course, Jesus formed that on purpose with uh, his spit and formed the clay and worked it into his eyes, and it didn't matter that he now could see, what mattered is how he did it, and they didn't like how Jesus was working. And then all through the gospel, you get to this chapter, and he raises a man to new life. And their reaction in the next chapter is going to be, well, the Romans now are going to come because Jesus has made this big stir. The Romans are going to come. They're going to take away this sort of false hierarchy that we have. They're going to take away our privilege and they're going to take away our power. So their reaction to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead was we should figure out a way to kill Jesus Because the Romans are going to come and ruin our lives. In fact, we see later in the chapter, in the next chapter, that they want to kill Lazarus as well, so that that spectacle is not there. But there's a very simple message here tonight, and the three points or three ideas that we have are phrases that I know all of us have heard for all of our time in church, if not for our entire lives. And I'm not going to, I'm not worried about spoiling the sermon as we go. I'll give all three of them to you here this evening as we start. And they are that Jesus loves you, Jesus knows what He is doing, and Jesus is in control. What difference would it make in your life if you were absolutely convinced of those three things? And when I say absolutely convinced, I mean there was no shadow of doubt in your heart and in your mind and in your life. And when you woke up in the morning, as sure as you knew that gravity was going to exist, you knew Jesus Christ loves you He knows what He's doing, and He's in complete control. It would change the way that you live your life. And though those truths impact our hearts at times, and it seems like sometimes God presses those thoughts on us in a more sure, more evident way than others, they should impact us every day of our lives. And Jesus is going to teach those truths in an interesting way. He's going to let a friend, a man that he loved, die and pass away from this earthly life and away wait and seemingly just lose control only to show them he had a bigger and better plan the entire time. Don't get me wrong All right off the bat, this is not a prosperity message in the sense that Jesus had a bigger and better plan, and he died, and they wanted to be healed, and so Jesus raised him to life, and your small plans, God has big plans for you. There is hurt in this passage too. There is pain in this passage. There is even confusion and question in this passage, but Jesus' overwhelming lesson to these people as he walks through this circumstance of life right with them, not distant from them but personal with them. He walks through this tragedy with them, teaching them, I love you, I know what I'm doing, and I am in control. There's different ways you can be certain of this. You can be intellectually certain. Just if I were to say, Livonia is in the state of Michigan, you can just know that that's where it is. You can intellectually know these three things about Christ. You can emotionally be certain of these things. My kids, you know, they do a lot of different things and we interact in a lot of different ways. But my kids, if you ask them, if it boiled down to it, they know that I love them. They know by emotion. And I know that they love me. When I walk in the door at times, there's this reaction from them that can only be brought about by the love in their hearts. And I know, emotionally, I know that it is true. And you can know those things emotionally about Christ. Experientially, we should be certain As sure as you know, when you get ready to take a sip of coffee, your brain thinks this is going to be good. Well, for some of you, this is going to be terrible. But you know what it's going to be because of the last time that you had it and your experience with it. And your experience with Christ should continue to teach you that he loves you, that he knows what he's doing, and that he's fully in control. There's experientially being certain Just as you know that gravity exists and your whole life operates under that assumption. You don't get up in the morning and hold to the side of the bed to make your feet hit the floor. You just get up. You don't walk to the kitchen and take out your cup of coffee and set it on the counter and bungee cord it down. You just know that it exists and you live your life based on that. And the truth is, if you know that Jesus loves you, that Jesus knows what He's doing and that Christ is fully in control, it should change the way that you live your life. Subconsciously, we live knowing gravity exists. Subconsciously, we should live our lives and base our decisions on those facts. That Jesus loves you. He knows what He's doing. And He's fully in control. See the first one of these in that first paragraph there that Jesus Loves you. Notice it says in verse number one, it says, Now a certain man was sick, a specific man named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and of her sister Martha. Ironically, Jesus is in another town named Bethany on kind of the east side of Jordan. This Bethany is about a hundred miles away. There's a big distance between them. And it says that they sent word. You know that Mary and Martha understood that Jesus loved them and that He loved Lazarus because they send message a hundred miles away, Jesus, your friend is sick. And the trust and the faith, their first reaction in in these waning moments of Lazarus' life as his life physical health begins to crumble, they send for Christ. That's who they trust. It's who they're looking toward. Why? Because they know that He loves them. How does Jesus' love cause certain reactions in your life? When a problem comes up, when uh, something that you don't understand happens, when a tragedy occurs, when a sickness or a diagnosis is given, when there's a broken feeling toward a relationship, how do you feel about that? Who do you trust with that most? It should be Christ. Why? Because He loves us. Look at verse 3. Therefore His sister sent unto Him, saying, Lord... Behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, He said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. What little we do know about Mary and Martha and Lazarus is that their family was a prominent, prosperous family. Verse 19 will tell you that many Jews came to see Mary and Martha and to comfort them concerning their brother they were prominent they were well known they were well to do later in Luke 10 they invite Jesus into their home it says it was many people there it says Martha was cumbered about with many things it wasn't just a little simple place evidently they probably had a large home where they could invite all of these people in we know that Mary in just the next chapter is going to anoint Jesus feet with with a box of ointment that is worth a year's wages in that time and do I think that that was the only thing she owned no I think they were probably wealthy enough that that's what they possessed. Jesus often seemed to base His ministry from their home. It was that they could sustain and help take care of Him and His disciples. They were courteous. They loved Him. They prepared meals for them. They provided for Jesus and for His disciples. And so we know that they were prominent. They had things. They were well known. And they were even devoted to Christ in His ministry. You see them all throughout the end of His ministry. They just keep showing up. But even their wealth and their prosperity, their possession, their popularity, even their devotion to Christ did not spare them from hardship. It didn't stop death from coming. And it's easy for us to say, well, wealth doesn't buy you happiness and, and possessions don't make things. We live our lives based spiritually, but even though we devote our lives to Christ, it does not spare us from hardship. Doesn't spare us from the problems of life. And this family is the family that Jesus loved. Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Look at verse 11. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. Look at verse number 36. Even those around him saw this. Then, the Jew, then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. Jesus loved this family and he loved these people. But here's the great truth of this passage. There was nothing exceptional about this family in the sense that Jesus loved them more than he loved anyone else in this room. In fact, if you were to go back a chapter, we won't for time's sake this evening, you would go back to John chapter 10 and you would see that he's our good shepherd. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheep but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and robber, but he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. He goes on, he says, a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him. And they know not the voice of strangers. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Then he goes on, he says, I am the good shepherd. In verse 11, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Then he goes on, he says that the sheep know his voice and he knows them. How is Jesus our good shepherd? He knows us. We know him and have a relationship with him. He doesn't abandon us in the hardships of life, as he says in chapter 10, as the hireling would run when the wolves enter life. When the wolves enter your life, Jesus is there expressing to you, I love you, I'm fully in control, and I know what I am doing. And so Jesus enters these people's lives in the moment of tragedy again, knowing what he is going to do, but not unmoved by their grief. He loves them. This is the chapter that we see that Jesus wept because of his emotion for them. He loved them greatly. And here's the truth if you're a Christian tonight. Jesus loves you. He is your good shepherd. Emotionally, experientially, intellectually, you can know that Jesus Christ loves you. And everything said of Mary and Martha and Lazarus can be said of you. Because Jesus loves you. You. It's a simple phrase. It's a song we sing, song our children know before they can probably form full sentences. They could sing the fact that Jesus loves them. But it is a fact that doesn't often sink into our minds. Because we often question Christ in a way, not in which we would question one that loves us, but question one that doesn't have our best interest at heart. The way we would go to a town hall meeting and question the leaders of a city why are you doing this that way? Why don't we have this this way? Why are we budgeting that way? That's the way we often treat Christ, not as a mother or a father or as a tender good shepherd. Does the fact that Jesus loves you impact your life? Look at the second. Jesus not only loves us, but he knows what he is doing. Look, if you would, verse number 5 and 6. And I want us to get this tonight because God doesn't give us any word for some vain or useless thing. He gives us every word with a purpose. Look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick. I want you to stop for a moment. That word, therefore. If you go into the Greek, which is the word un in the Latin, it's ergo, which you may recognize we do this, ergo, because of this, therefore, it can be translated, it's often translated in Scripture as the word, so. That's probably the word we're more familiar with. We don't say a whole lot of therefores probably in our everyday life. But read it that way. When Je- And it's in the beginning of the sentence in the original language, so read it that way. So when Jesus had heard that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was, that therefore points us back to verse number five. Jesus loved them, therefore He waited. And that doesn't seem to make sense, right? It seems like it should say, Jesus loved them, so therefore He grabbed His things and ran to Bethany. Jesus loved them, so He healed them from a hundred miles away. Jesus loved them, so he worked in Lazarus' life in an unspeakable way and gave them great joy. But it doesn't say that he loved them, so he waited. Therefore, he held back his action of love toward them. Therefore, he held back the thing that they were longing for or requesting, the thing that they deeply wanted. And Mary and Martha were not asking for a bad thing. They were asking for a very good thing. They wanted their brother not to be sick, but to be well. Not to die, but to live. Good requests. So it wasn't that they asked Jesus for the wrong thing. They asked Jesus for the exact thing that they knew in their heart they wanted to ask for. There's nothing wrong with them asking Jesus for that. And because He loved them, He waited. He did not give them exactly what they wanted, exactly when they wanted it. Why is that so important? Because often we look at our lives and we miss the greater goal of God's love. We often seem to base love on how it is shown or displayed to us. Sometimes I base whether somebody really loves me on how they react to me. If you have children, you may have experienced this before, And I'm sure that they don't mean it in a a deep, hateful sense, but can I have ice cream? No. Well, you don't love me. (laughs) Well, yes, I do, and that's why I'm not giving you this ice cream. Can I do this? No. Well, you don't love me. And often we live our lives with God the same way. As a little child with a complete misunderstanding of how things are working, missing the greater purpose Sometimes my kids don't understand why I say do this this way or go here this way. You can't have these things. And they miss the greater purpose of the display. Is it not based in love when I do that? No, it is based in great love. You parents know that there is a love towards children that they cannot even fathom at this point in their lives. And you would do anything and you would also withhold anything if it means that it's a display and it works the greater purpose And it's rooted in your love for them. What was Jesus' greater purpose for them? Notice in verse number 4, when Jesus heard that, He said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Jesus recognized that in their moment, the greater good in their lives was not seeing Lazarus healed immediately from his sickness. The greater good was seeing God's glory displayed in a magnificent way. The greater good was a closer relationship with Him as they would follow Him. The greater good was God's glory, God's way. And often we may think in our lives, how deep is God's love? And we may think that God sometimes loves us more than others. Or if we do right, maybe He loves us more than when we do wrong. But it is not that way. He loves us fully, but He is completely fixed on the glory of God as his goal and purpose in this world and in this universe. And that's where we often get confused. Because we say, where is God's love displayed? I don't have what I want when I want it and when I need it. And we don't often ask for bad things. We may ask for health. We may ask for healing. We may ask for a relationship to be mended. We may ask for clarity on a decision in life. We're asking for good things, but it doesn't seem that God is pouring His love out on us because we don't have what we need, when in reality, what God is doing in with holding those things and waiting for a moment is getting our eyes fixed, not on what we're asking for, but on God and in His glory and His greater purpose in this world. Do you think that Lazarus would have lived a little differently being healed healed from a sickness compared to being raised from the dead? It doesn't always work that way though, does it? It's easy to stand back from their point of view and say, yes, Jesus waited and then eventually He healed him and Lazarus was raised from the dead and all ended well. But we know that the truth doesn't always work out that way. He doesn't always heal. He doesn't raise from the physical death of this earth. There was moments when my dad passed away and things just seemed uh, surreal. In the first few moments, of course, as I'm there with him, you're just looking at him thinking if he could just start back up. Just be there. You've looked over a loved one in a casket and thought, Man, if God could just do some miraculous thing. But he does. But maybe not in the way that we'd like him to. Maybe not in the way that we asked him to. But I'll be honest, I have a deeper relationship with my heavenly father than I ever did when my earthly father was on this earth. And I'm not saying that that's the full purpose or that's why God worked the way that he did, but that is why and how God is using that in my life. Because God has said, I love you and I still know what I'm doing. And you can follow me and you can be close to me and you can fix your eyes on me. And though what you want is not what you will get, what you need is what I will give. And Christ works deeply in our lives. It may not be what lends to an immediate sense of well-being. It may not be what gives us our immediate happiness, but the whole point is that the Son of God, here in this passage, may demonstrate His power over death and show not just His love, but that He knows what is best, and that He knows what He is doing. Here is wise love. You say, how is this love for Jesus to say, I'm going to wait and I'm going to get the glory Because Jesus knows that you will, in the long run, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, James, Parkview Baptist Church, you will be more helped to see the power of God than to be spared from your pain. You'll be more helped to see the power of God than to be spared from your pain. In verse 42, skip there for just a moment, we'll spoil the end of the story. We know that Lazarus is raised from the dead, and Jesus is going to give us the exact purpose as to why He's working the way that He is. Verse 42, And I knew that thou hearest me always, He's praying, but because of the people which stand by, I said it that they may believe that thou hast sent me. He is working for their faith. He's working the way that He is so their relationship with Him would grow. And sometimes what we pray for in life may not be what God gives us. But when you say, well, what about the verse that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called? What about that verse that all things work together for good? It doesn't say that it works together for my mindset of what is good. What is good in this world? God only is good. And all things working together for good does not mean that everything's just going to work out, I'm going to have peace, and eventually the pain's going to go away, and all this is going to be taken care of. Working together for good means it works me toward my God. And Jesus says, I love you, I know what is best, and I'm going to pull and push and prod you, and I'm going to work in this circumstance so that you will see the glory of God. Let's look at the final thing this evening, because these are good things. These are important things, that God loves us, that God knows what he is doing. But neither one of those matter if the third one's not true. He's fully in control. And though he may delay, and though he may wait, he works perfectly. So number one, Jesus loves you. Number two, Jesus knows what he's doing. And finally tonight, Jesus is in control. We have in this chapter a very clear description of the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. In large part, in the first few centuries, there was a controversy kind of taken up of how the early church was going to phrase what Jesus was. You had this group of belief called Arianism after a man named Arian, and they said Jesus was created by God and then sent to us. Docetism said Jesus was like a man, but not really a man. But the Bible teaches that He was God and He is man. That He is both fully God and fully man. And both of those are displayed here. Look, if you would, at verse number 28. By now, for time's sake, we'll we'll skip through some of these middle verses. And Jesus decides that He's going to go there. And He greets Martha. And she says, If thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. She displays some faith here. She says, I know if you'd have come, you'd have healed him. And then Jesus says, thy brother shall rise again. She says, oh, I know he's going to raise on the last day. She's thinking of the final resurrection. He says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. I'll do what I want and work how I want. She says, yea, Lord. Verse 27, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Verse 28, and when she had said so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, the Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that she arose quickly and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then, which were with her in the house and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her saying, she goeth to the grave to weep there. And so like these little minions, they follow after her weeping with her. And so now there is a crowd there. Verse 32, then when Mary was come where, she, where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell down at His feet, saying unto Him, Lord, if Thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, He groaned in the Spirit and was troubled. That word groaned in the Spirit in most other places in the New Testament is, just, it is translated as sternly warned, sternly charged, scolded, indignant, you're saying here, Jesus was not, He was at odds. He was indignant about what was going on. He groaned in His spirit. You say, well, why was He indignant in this way? Well, of course, He was upset at their lack of faith, but I don't think that that was it. I don't think that Jesus looked at Martha who says, Jesus, I'm glad You're here. I know if You'd come, You'd have healed Him. But we trust you. My brother's going to raise in the last day. Mary comes out. Jesus, I know if you'd have been here, you would have worked in this way and you would have healed his life. And I don't think he then looks at them and says, oh, you silly people of unbelief. Though he did get frustrated with unbelief at times, I don't feel that this is one of them. We'll say, well, he is frustrated because he is sad, but Jesus knows that in just a moment he's going to raise this man from the dead. And it's not just that he missed Lazarus or he was sad of his death, because Lazarus is going to come back in just a moment. Why is it that he's so upset? He's proving that he is a man. He is not unaffected by human suffering. He is, not, he is agitated by death. You could say He is devastated by death. Death has reduced Him to this point. In fact, in verse 35, it's going to tell us that Jesus wept. He of all people as the God that created all things in His Word through the Son understands that this is not the way that things are supposed to be. The creator of the world sits with his creation, upset in his spirit when he sees the magnitude of sin and the impact of death on his creation and in this world and on these humans whom he loves and he is moved with compassion. And often we feel that God is somehow sterile to us and that he's sitting in heaven untouched by our problems, sitting amongst angels in golden streets, just sort of helping our lives until we get to him. But he is moved by our pain. He is driven by the fact that sin has destroyed the relationship that He created us to have with Him. And Jesus here is moved by that. He groans in His Spirit. One writer beautifully states, he says, Christ did not approach the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepared for a contest. Therefore, we need not wonder that He again groans in His Spirit at the violent, violent tyranny of death which he had come to conquer when it was placed before his very eyes. We do not mourn as those who have no hope, but as Christians we know that we do mourn. But I want you to know tonight that Jesus did not just come as a sympathizer. He did not just come to cry on these people's shoulders. He did not just come to share in their weeping. He came as a sympathetic high priest. One who would weep but one who could also work. One who could bear sorrow, but one who could change that sorrow. One who could feel grief, but one who could conquer that grief as well. One who could share in the pains of life, but then change them for eternal good. And I want you to know tonight that no matter what your year has beheld or brought into your life, And no matter what the next year will bring, Jesus loves you. Jesus knows what He's doing. But more than both of those, Jesus is in control. He conquers death. He forgives and covers sin through the forgiveness of the sacrifice that He gave on a cross. I want to finish with this tonight and we'll be done. I want you to look carefully at verse number 43 Jesus is going to display his power over death he says yes I love you I know what I'm doing and watch I can control when when he thus had spoken he cried with a loud voice Lazarus come forth and I love how John states it and he that was dead came forth if you're a parent tonight you know that that's a big statement it's not often I say kids come here that you could finish that phrase with, and they came. (laughs) All at once. No questioning. They just came. Jesus shows his power. He commands this dead flesh body that had been rotting for four days at this point to come forth, and he does. Notice, John gives us something specific, though. Bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin, Jesus saith unto them, Loose him. let him go and that's a great display of Christ's power but I think that there's a reason John gives us those details look if you would at chapter 19 and we'll be finished in just a moment look at chapter 19 look at verse number 40 remember it's the same author giving us details he's writing the story he's not writing this like a journal as it happens he's writing this years as it happened more as you would tell a full tale knowing what you're getting to at the end Look at you. What chapter nineteen? Look at verse number forty. John tells us. Then they took, then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. So John tells us, just like all Jews, Jesus was bound. He had the napkin tied around his face, just as a normal burial. Then look down just a few verses in chapter twenty and verse number five. When his disciples find his empty tomb. John gives us the details once more. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then come a Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and see that the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. And it says, if Jesus, John's giving us this message, Jesus didn't need any help. Lazarus came out and Jesus said, let him loose. Somebody untie that man. Take the napkin off his face. Let him see the light from the darkness of the tomb. But when Jesus died, and when Jesus raised from the dead, John's not giving us the laundry practices of Jesus here. He's giving us a detail to His power. That He was not raised from the dead as Lazarus. That He raised Himself because He is in full control. And no one needed to untie him. No one needed to unbind him. No one needed to take the napkin off of his face. And in fact, it says, Jesus set that napkin together and placed it aside, saying, hey, John, I need no help. I am totally in control. And the message tonight for our year that we have finished, no matter how painful or hard or good it may have been, is that Jesus loves you. He knows what He's doing. And as He proved through the cross, He is fully in control. And as we start this new year, no matter what you face, no matter how many times you fail, no matter how many times we sin, no matter how much trouble we get into, no matter the pain that we suffer, no matter what unexpected thing comes our way, no matter the questions that we ask, these three truths will affect or can affect the way we live our lives because Jesus loves us. He knows what he's doing. And praise God, he is fully in control. Let's bow our heads together and thank him for that this evening.